The Book of Jacob, Chapter 5 Jacob now launches into the longest single chapter in the entire Book of Mormon. It is a quotation from the writings of the prophet Zenith. This great prophet was a descendant of Joseph, and he was slain for telling the Israelites that when their Messiah came among them, they would mistake him for an imposter and crucify him. We do not know the exact date of the ministry of Zenos, but we do know how the writings of this great prophet came into the possession of the Nephites. It will be recalled that the Nephites possessed the brass plates which had been brought from Jerusalem. This treasure of scripture contained the writings of the prophets clear back to the creation and contained a number of books which are not found in the modern Bible. The writings of Zenos are among the books missing from the Bible, and we are therefore extremely fortunate to have this chapter of Zenos included in the writings of Jacob in the Book of Mormon. This chapter has to do with the famous allegory of the tame olive tree. An allegory is a parable, and you have to have a key to interpret it or it is meaningless. The allegory of the tame olive tree constitutes a prophetic history of mankind covering a period of approximately 3,000 years. Most of it has already come to pass, so we find the key to its meaning in the unfolding of human history. Behold, my brethren, do ye not remember to have read the words of the prophet Zenos, which he spake unto the house of Israel, saying, Hearken, O ye house of Israel, and hear the words of me, a prophet of the Lord. For behold, thus saith the Lord, I will liken thee, O house of Israel, like unto a tame olive tree, which a man took and nourished in his vineyard, and it grew and waxed old and began to decay. Zenos pleaded with the house of Israel to listen to his words, because he was going to speak them as a prophet of the Lord. In other words, this was not wishful thinking or the figment of poetic literary imagination, but a revelation from God depicting the future history of Israel in a parable. The Lord had said to Zenos that he would liken the house of Israel to a tame olive tree. He said this tree had been carefully nourished and cultivated, and then it began to be old and started to decay. And it came to pass that the master of the vineyard went forth, and he saw that his olive tree began to decay, and he said, I will prune it, and dig about it, and nourish it, that perhaps it may shoot forth young and tender branches, and it perish not. The master of the vineyard, which we presume was our Heavenly Father, said he would prune his vineyard, which seems to have meant that he would cut out the dead wood, and then he would dig around it which probably meant that he would stir up the Israelites and thereby provoke them to good works. Finally, he said he would nourish this precious tree. And we learn from Jacob chapter 6, verse 7, that the nourishment of heaven is the good word of God, or the scriptures. And we therefore assume that this present passage has reference to the giving of additional revelations specifically designed for the spiritual nourishment of Israel. Out of all of this effort, the master hoped the dying tree would produce some young and tender branches. The olive tree has the rather unique capacity 
to grow new and tender branches which are cut off from the parent plant and transplanted elsewhere. And it came to pass that he pruned it and digged about it and nourished it according to his word. And it came to pass that after many days it began to put forth somewhat a little young and tender branches. But behold, the main top thereof began to perish. After working diligently, the tree did indeed begin to produce some young and tender branches, but the main top of the tree began to perish. This represents the apostasy of Israel over a period of 1,500 years. Now in the days of Moses, the Lord offered to make Israel a holy nation above all other people of the world. The Lord gave the same promise to Enoch and his people, and they became the greatest people on earth. But the children of Israel never proved themselves worthy to receive the same blessing as Enoch and his people. In fact, a short time after the Israelites promised to keep their covenant with the Lord, Moses found them worshiping a golden calf after the abominable fertility rites of the Egyptians. The Lord therefore took away his promise of making Israel the greatest nation on earth, and gave them a far lesser promise and a lesser law. After Moses was gone, the great prophet General Joshua led Israel into the promised land. However, there was further apostasy which finally resulted in a period of dark ages, which lasted until the golden age under David and Solomon. But when Solomon died around 922 B.C., the northern ten tribes separated from the southern tribes of Judah and Levi. Just 201 years later, that would be 721 B.C., the northern ten tribes had degenerated to the point where the Assyrians were able to come over and conquer them and carry the northern ten tribes away to the headwaters of the Tigris River. This left the Jews and the Levites the exclusive custodians of the temple and the scriptures at Jerusalem. In 587 B.C., the Babylonians besieged Jerusalem, smashed the beautiful temple of Solomon, turned the city into a pile of rubble, and carried off the survivors to Babylon. However, Babylon herself was conquered by Persia in 539 B.C., and the next year, Cyrus, the Persian king, allowed 50,000 Jews to trek back to Jerusalem. By 516 B.C., they had completed their second temple and dedicated it to the Lord. Nevertheless, their religious devotion remained extremely shallow, and before long, another dark ages had set in, which lasted until the coming of Christ. The Jews as a nation rejected their Messiah when he appeared among them and subjected him to all the indignities described by the prophet Isaiah in the 53rd chapter of his book. At the same time, it should be pointed out that all of Christ's original converts were Jews. Nevertheless, the number was not sufficient to revitalize the remnant of Israel as a people. And it came to pass that the master of the vineyard saw it, and he said unto his servant, It grieveth me that I should lose this tree. Wherefore, go and pluck the branches from a wild olive tree, and bring them hither unto me, and we will pluck off those main branches which are beginning to wither away, and we will cast them into the fire, that they may be burned. 
And behold, saith the Lord of the vineyard, I take away many of these young and tender branches, and I will graft them whithersoever I will. And it mattereth not that if it so be that the root of this tree will perish, I may preserve the fruit thereof unto myself. Wherefore I will take these young and tender branches, and I will graft them whithersoever I will. In the prophetic parable we are studying, it was anticipated that this would happen. The master of the vineyard, our heavenly father, therefore said to his servant, who had appeared to be the Savior, that it grieved him to lose this tree, which was what was left of Israel. He therefore instructed his servant, or the Savior, to get some branches from a wild olive tree and bring them to him. He said the next step would be to cut out the main branches of the mother tree which were beginning to wither and cast them into the fire. It will be recalled that the few Jews who did accept the gospel in Christ's day carried it to the Gentiles and thereby brought new life to the decaying vitality of Israel. This work was done primarily by Paul, the apostle. The Gentile Christians were the wild olive branches which were grafted into the tame olive tree of Israel. The dead branches which were plucked off and burned were the Jews who were destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was sacked and burned. Meanwhile, the master of the vineyard had instructed his servant to take away many of the young and tender branches so the master could plant them elsewhere. He said that in case the root of the mother tree should perish, he would still be able to preserve the strain of fruit represented by the tame olive tree because the branches of Israel that would be planted in other parts of the world would survive. These young and tender branches which were transplanted in various parts of the earth represented colonies of Israelites, such as the colony of Lehi and the colony of the Mulekites, which were taken by the Lord to various parts of the world. Take thou the branches of the wild olive tree and graft them in, in the stead thereof. And these which I have plucked off, I will cast into the fire and burn them, that they may not cumber the ground of my vineyard. And it came to pass that the servant of the Lord of the vineyard did according to the word of the Lord of the vineyard, and grafted in the branches of the wild olive tree. And the Lord of the vineyard caused that it should be digged about and pruned and nourished, saying unto his servant, It grieveth me that I should lose this tree, wherefore that perhaps I might preserve the roots thereof, that they perish not, that I might preserve them unto myself, I have done this thing. Wherefore go thy way, watch the tree, and nourish it according to my words. And these will I place in the nethermost part of my vineyard, whithersoever I will it mattereth not unto thee. And I do it that I may preserve unto myself the natural branches of the tree, and also that I may lay up fruit thereof against the season unto myself. For it grieveth me that I should lose this tree and the fruit thereof. But the master did not intend to abandon the mother tree. He wanted to graft in the wild olive tree branches in an attempt to save the mother tree, and he ordered the dead wood which was cut out of this tree to be burned so it would not encumber or clutter up the master's vineyard. The servant did exactly as he was told and successfully grafted in the branches of the wild olive tree. 
The Lord of the vineyard then instructed that the tree be cultivated, pruned, and nourished so that he would not lose this very special source of fine, tame fruit. He especially wanted to preserve the root of the tree, which provided the nourishment for the house of Israel. As indicated earlier, the source of nourishment is described in Jacob chapter 6, verse 7, as the scripture or the good word of God. The Lord knew it was of the greatest importance to save these sacred writings as the spiritual touchstone or foundation for future generations. Note that the parable does not specifically identify the Lord or master of the vineyard. It has been interpreted various ways, but this writer believes the master is our heavenly father and his servant, who it will be noted remained the same from generation to generation, is the Savior. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard went his way and hid the natural branches of the tame olive tree in the nethermost parts of the vineyard, some in one and some in another, according to his will and pleasure. And it came to pass that a long time passed away. And the Lord of the vineyard said unto his servant, Come, let us go down into the vineyard, that we may labor in the vineyard. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard and also the servant went down into the vineyard to labor. And it came to pass that the servant said unto his master, Behold, look here, behold the tree. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard looked and beheld the tree in the which the wild olive branches had been grafted, and it had sprung forth and begun to bear fruit. And he beheld that it was good, and the fruit thereof was like unto the natural fruit. The Lord of the vineyard then took the young and tender branches which had been plucked from the mother tree and hid them in various remote corners of his property. The fact that they were hid means, no doubt, that they were no longer known to the mother tree or the main body of Israel. The parable says that after a long time it passed away, probably referring to a period sometime between the first and third centuries A.D. The master and his servant came back to the vineyard to see how the mother tree and all the transplants were faring. They found that the branches of the wild olive tree, which had been grafted into the tame olive tree, were beginning to bear fruit, and it was good just like the natural fruit. This no doubt refers to the early Gentile Christians who had become adopted Israelites during the first two and a half centuries of Christianity. And he said unto the servant, Behold, the branches of the wild tree have taken hold of the moisture of the root thereof, that the root thereof hath brought forth much strength. And because of the much strength of the root thereof, the wild branches have brought forth tame fruit. Now if we had not grafted in these branches, the tree thereof would have perished. And now behold, I shall lay up much fruit, which the tree thereof hath brought forth, and the fruit thereof I shall lay up against the season unto mine own self. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard said unto the servant, Come, let us go to the nethermost part of the vineyard, and behold, if the natural branches of the tree have not brought forth much fruit also, that I may lay up of the fruit thereof against the season unto mine own self. And it came to pass that they went forth, 
whither the master had hid the natural branches of the tree. And he said unto the servant, Behold these. And he beheld the first, that it had brought forth much fruit, and he beheld also that it was good. And he said unto the servant, Take of the fruit thereof, and lay it up against the season, that I may preserve it unto mine own self. For behold, said he, this long time have I nourished it, and it hath brought forth much fruit. The master said the wild branches had taken hold of the moisture from the root of the tree. In other words, the Gentile Christians were thriving on the scripture contained in the revelations of God. The master of the vineyard then wanted to see how the young and tender branches which had been cut from the mother tree were progressing in the nethermost regions where they had been transplanted. It was found that the first transplant had brought forth much fruit, and it was good. The master was delighted and instructed his servant to reap the harvest and preserve the fruit. And it came to pass that the servant said unto his master, How comest thou hither to plant this tree, or this branch of the tree? For behold, it was the poorest spot in all the land of the vineyard. And the Lord of the vineyard said unto him, Counsel me not. I knew that it was a poor spot of ground. Wherefore I said unto thee, I have nourished it this long time, and thou beholdest that it hath brought forth much fruit. However, the servant was puzzled that his master would risk putting a transplant in this particular place, because it was the poorest spot in all of the land belonging to the master's vineyard. The master said, Counsel me not. He said he was perfectly aware that it was a poor place, and that is why he had nourished this transplant a long time. The important thing was that it had produced good fruit. We are not certain which group of Israelites the first transplant might have been. However, the lost ten tribes had been transplanted somewhere a long time. It may have referred to them. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard said unto his servant, Look hither. Behold, I have planted another branch of the tree also. And thou knowest that this spot of ground was poorer than the first. But behold the tree. I have nourished it this long time, and it hath brought forth much fruit. Therefore gather it, and lay it up against the season, that I may preserve it unto mine own self. Now we learn the second transplant was placed in an even poorer spot of ground, worse than the first. Nevertheless, it had brought forth good fruit, apparently the tame variety, and the master ordered that it be harvested. The master said he had also carefully nurtured this tree for a long time. However, we do not have any specific hint as to which branch of Israel it might have been. Since we are finding Israelites on every continent of the globe, this transplant may refer to some of them. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard said again unto his servant, Look hither, and behold another branch also which I have planted. Behold that I have nourished it also, and it hath brought forth much fruit. And he said unto the servant, Look hither, and behold the last. Behold, this have I planted in a good spot of ground, and I have nourished it this long time. And only a part of the tree hath brought forth tame fruit, and the other part of the tree hath brought forth wild fruit. Behold, 
I have nourished this tree like unto the others. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard said unto the servant, Pluck off the branches that have not brought forth good fruit, and cast them into the fire. But behold, the servant said unto him, Let us prune it, and dig about it, and nourish it a little longer, that perhaps it may bring forth good fruit unto thee, that thou canst lay it up against the season. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard, and the servant of the Lord of the vineyard, did nourish all the fruit of the vineyard. The master then turned his attention to a third transplant, which had been carefully nourished for a long time. The master had great expectations from this transplant, because unlike the other two, he had placed this in a good spot of ground. In fact, in verse 43, we are told that it was choice above all other parts of the land in the vineyard. But amazingly, part of this tree had brought forth tame fruit, and the other part had produced wild fruit. The master said he had nourished this tree just like the others. The master decided he would prune off the branches producing wild fruit and cast them into the fire. The servant, however, felt that even these branches could be made productive and bring forth good fruit if the tree were carefully nourished and cultivated. Apparently the master consented because they both set about to nourish this tree along with all the other parts of the vineyard. From all circumstances, this third transplant to the most choice part of the land would appear to be the American Israelites. Both the Lamanites and Nephites remained united for a period of time following Christ's ministry, but in 231 A.D. they had split again, and the Lamanites were producing wild fruit while the Nephites remained true believers in Christ. And it came to pass that a long time had passed away, and the Lord of the vineyard said unto his servant, Come, let us go down into the vineyard, that we may labor again in the vineyard. For behold, the time draweth near, and the end soon cometh. Wherefore I must lay up fruit against the season unto mine own self. Now the allegory says a long time passed away before the master came with his servant to take another inventory of the vineyard. We assume from the surrounding circumstances that this refers to a period following the Reformation when the Gentile Christians had split into many different churches and the father was getting ready to introduce the great last dispensation of the gospel. Note that the master says the time draweth nigh and the end soon cometh. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard and the servant went down into the vineyard. And they came to the tree whose natural branches had been broken off, and the wild branches had been grafted in. And behold, all sorts of fruit did cumber the tree. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard did taste of the fruit every sort according to its number. And the Lord of the vineyard said, Behold, this long time have we nourished this tree, and I have laid up unto myself against the season much fruit. But behold, this time it hath brought forth much fruit, and there is none of it which is good. And behold, there are all kinds of bad fruit, and it profiteth me nothing, notwithstanding all our labor. And now it grieveth me that I should lose this tree. When the master and his servant examined the mother tree 
into which the wild Gentile branches had been grafted. They found it producing all sorts of fruit instead of the tame and good fruit which had been so abundantly present before. The master tasted the various kinds of fruit and sorrowfully remarked that while the mother tree had responded to care and cultivation in the past and even produced much good fruit, there was not any of it that was good now. Instead, there was all kinds of bad fruit, which was of no profit to the master whatever, and this in spite of all their labor. The master said, It grieveth me to lose this tree. And the Lord of the vineyard said unto the servant, What shall we do unto the tree, that I may preserve again good fruit thereof unto mine own self? And the servant said unto his master, Behold, because thou didst graft in the branches of the wild olive tree, they have nourished the roots, that they are alive, and they have not perished. Wherefore thou beholdest that they are yet good. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard said unto his servant, The tree profiteth me nothing, and the roots thereof profit me nothing, so long as it shall bring forth evil fruit. Nevertheless, I know that the roots are good, and for mine own purpose I have preserved them. And because of their much strength they have hitherto brought forth from the wild branches good fruit. But behold, the wild branches have grown and have overrun the roots thereof. And because that the wild branches have overcome the roots thereof, it hath brought forth much evil fruit. And because that it hath brought forth so much evil fruit, Thou beholdest that it beginneth to perish, and it will soon become ripened, that it may be cast into the fire, except we should do something for it to preserve it. The master asked his servant if he knew of any way this tree might yet be induced to bring forth good fruit. The servant said that by grafting in the wild Gentile branches they had at least kept the roots of the tree alive. In other words, the Gentile Christians had brought forth all kinds of wild fruit, but at least they had preserved the scriptures or the good word of God, which we have already identified as meaning the root of the tree. But the master pointed out that neither the tree nor the roots were of any value so long as they produced evil fruit. He acknowledged, however, that he had deliberately kept this tree and its roots alive, because he knew that in them there was much strength, in fact, the very strength which had produced the good fruit before. Unfortunately, however, the wild Gentile branches had overrun the strength of the roots. This would imply that the Gentile Christians had built up elaborate churches contrary to the scriptures. This is borne out by verse 48, where the servant says the branches of the tree have grown faster than the roots, and taken strength unto themselves. The master knew that unless something remarkable occurred, the mother tree would perish and have to be destroyed. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard said unto his servant, Let us go down into the nethermost parts of the vineyard, and behold, if the natural branches have also brought forth evil fruit. And it came to pass that they went down into the nethermost parts of the vineyard, and it came to pass that they beheld that the fruit of the natural branches had become corrupt also. 
yea, the first and the second and also the last, and they had all become corrupt. And the wild fruit of the last had overcome that part of the tree which brought forth good fruit, even that the branch had withered away and died. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard wept, and said unto the servant, What could I have done more for my vineyard? Behold, I knew that all the fruit of the vineyard, save it were these, had become corrupted, and now these which have once brought forth good fruit have also become corrupted, and now all the trees of my vineyard are good for nothing, save it be to be hewn down and cast into the fire. And behold, this last, whose branch hath withered away, I did plant in a good spot of ground, yea, even that which was choice unto me above all other parts of the land of my vineyard. And thou beheldest that I also cut down that which cumbered this spot of ground, that I might plant this tree in the stead thereof. The master suggested that they immediately check on the transplanted branches to see if they had brought forth evil fruit also. They found that these natural branches of the mother tree were also producing corrupt fruit. This was true of the first transplant, also the second transplant, even the third. In fact, the third last transplant, which had produced part tame and part wild fruit, was now totally corrupt. The wild fruit had overrun that part of the tree which had produced the good fruit, and the good branches had died. In other words, the Lamanites had finally wiped out the Nephite culture, and only the wild fruit remained. As the Lord of the vineyard beheld what had happened, he wept. He asked his servant what more could have been done to preserve this tree. He expressed the greatest disappointment that he did not now have any part of the vineyard producing good fruit. Therefore, all of his trees would have to be hewn down and cast into the fire. He was especially sorrowful about the third transplant and the branches which had withered away. We assume this refers to the Nephites because they had been planted in this choice ground, choice above all other parts of the land, and now they too had become corrupted. The master pointed out that this third transplant had been given every advantage, including the fact that the master had cut down the trees which formerly occupied this territory in order that this new transplant from the mother tree might have every advantage. This probably has reference to the destruction of the Jaredite civilization, which was completely wiped off the American continent in order to make room for the civilization raised up by the people of Lehi. And thou beheldest that a part thereof brought forth good fruit, and a part thereof brought forth wild fruit. And because I plucked not the branches thereof and cast them into the fire, behold, they have overcome the good branch, that it hath withered away. And now, behold, notwithstanding all the care which we have taken of my vineyard, the trees thereof have become corrupted, that they bring forth no good fruit. And these I had hoped to preserve, to have laid up fruit thereof against the season unto mine own self. But behold, they have become like unto the wild olive tree, and they are of no worth but to be hewn down and cast into the fire. And it grieveth me that I should lose them. 
But what could I have done more in my vineyard? Have I slackened mine hand, that I have not nourished it? Nay, I have nourished it, and I have digged about it, and I have pruned it, and I have dunged it, and I have stretched forth mine hand almost all the day long. And the end draweth nigh. And it grieveth me that I should hew down all the trees of my vineyard, and cast them into the fire, that they should be burned? Who is it that has corrupted my vineyard? The master complained that only part of the third transplant had brought forth good fruit, and now those branches had withered away also. Once more the master lamented that all his trees had become corrupted, and there was no good fruit coming from any of the vineyard. The trees were therefore of no worth to him, and should be destroyed, which deeply grieved him. The master asked the servant what more could have been done to make the vineyard productive. In fact, he wondered who or what could have corrupted his vineyard. And it came to pass that the servant said unto his master, Is it not the loftiness of thy vineyard? Have not the branches thereof overcome the roots which are good? And because the branches have overcome the roots thereof, Behold, they grew faster than the strength of the roots, taking strength unto themselves. Behold, I say, is not this the cause that the trees of thy vineyard have become corrupted? The servant replied that he thought it was the loftiness of the tree of the vineyard which had caused the trouble. He felt the branches had overcome the roots, which was the source of their strength. The branches therefore grew faster than the strength of the roots could provide, and began taking strength unto themselves. As pointed out in verse 37, we suggested that this has reference to the numerous sects of Christianity, which sprung up in place of the true church and took strength unto themselves by setting up apostate doctrines and extravagant religious orders contrary to the scriptures or the root of the tree. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard said unto the servant, let us go to and hew down the trees of the vineyard, and cast them into the fire, that they shall not cumber the ground of my vineyard, for I have done all. What could I have done more for my vineyard? But behold, the servant said unto the Lord of the vineyard, Spare it a little longer. And the Lord said, Yea, I will spare it a little longer, for it grieveth me that I should lose the trees of my vineyard. Wherefore, let us take of the branches of these which I have planted in the nethermost parts of my vineyard, and let us graft them into the tree from whence they came, and let us pluck from the tree those branches whose fruit is most bitter, and graft in the natural branches of the tree in the stead thereof. And this will I do, that the tree may not perish, that perhaps... I may preserve unto myself the roots thereof for mine own purpose. The master suggested that they go forth and cut down the whole vineyard, since all of their efforts seemed to have been in vain. The servant, however, pleaded with the lord of the vineyard, saying, Spare it a little longer. The master consented because he said he had greatly grieved because of the loss of this vineyard. The master said that he would take the transplanted branches from the various parts of the earth for they had been growing and graft them back into the mother tree. This probably has reference to the gathering of Israel in the latter days. 
The master further said that the branches of the mother tree which were producing the most bitter fruit would be cut out to make room for the grafting in of the natural branches. The master said he would do this in hopes that the tree might not perish and that he might yet preserve the roots thereof. And behold, the roots of the natural branches of the tree which I planted whithersoever I would are yet alive. Wherefore, that I may preserve them also for mine own purpose, I will take of the branches of this tree, and I will graft them in unto them. Yea, I will graft in unto them the branches of their mother tree, that I may preserve the roots also unto mine own self, that when they shall be sufficiently strong, perhaps they may bring forth good fruit unto me, and I may yet have glory in the fruit of my vineyard. Furthermore, he pointed out that the roots or scriptures of the three transplanted branches remained in existence or alive, and by taking branches from the mother tree and grafting or combining them with these roots, it might be possible to preserve these colonies of Israel as well. Certainly the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, or the word of the Lord to the Nephites, had been a most important source of strength for the colonies of the Israelites that had been gathered in from the Gentile Christians in the latter days. The lost ten tribes will also bring their scriptures with them when they come, which will further strengthen the various segments of Israel wherever they are. And it came to pass that they took from the natural tree which had become wild, and grafted in unto the natural trees which also had become wild. And they also took of the natural trees which had become wild, and grafted into their mother tree. And the Lord of the vineyard said unto the servant, Pluck not the wild branches from the trees, save it be those which are most bitter, and in them ye shall graft according to that which I have said. And we will nourish again the trees of the vineyard, and we will trim up the branches thereof, and we will pluck from the trees those branches which are ripened, that must perish, and cast them into the fire. And this I do that perhaps the roots thereof may take strength because of their goodness, and because of the change of the branches, that the good may overcome the evil. Thus they cut branches from the natural mother tree which had become wild, and grafted them into the three transplanted branches in the nethermost parts of the vineyard. They also took parts of the transplanted branches and grafted them back into the mother tree. This is probably the part of the parable through which we are now passing. The Gentile Christians from the wild olive tree turned out to have a strain of Israelite blood in them, and they have joined the true church of the latter days and are giving of their strength to the Lamanites and other Israelites who are being converted in the Pacific and the Orient. Eventually these will combine to give strength to the Jews when they are converted, and also give strength to the lost tribes when they return. This amalgamation of all scripture and the final gathering of Israel are probably the events referred to in these two verses, 55 and 56. During the pruning and grafting process, the master said the servants were not to destroy the wild or Gentile branches except those that were the most bitter. The roots or scriptures and the natural branches of Israel were to be kept alive among the Gentiles. 
that hopefully they might be preserved and induced to bring forth good fruit. The plan was to nourish all the trees of the vineyard, trim up the branches, and cut out the deadwood so it could be burned. And because that I have preserved the natural branches and the roots thereof, and that I have grafted in the natural branches again into their mother tree, and have preserved the roots of their mother tree, that perhaps the trees of my vineyard may bring forth again good fruit, and that I may have joy again in the fruit of my vineyard, and perhaps that I may rejoice exceedingly that I have preserved the roots and the branches of the first fruit. Wherefore, go to, and call servants, that we may labor diligently with our might in the vineyard, that we may prepare the way, that I may bring forth again the natural fruit, which natural fruit is good and the most precious above all other fruit. It was hoped that the roots or scriptures would once more become strong after the grafting in of the new branches, and that the goodness or strength of the scriptures would overcome the evil of the branches so they could produce good fruit according to the word of the Lord. In order to accomplish this task, the master instructed that there be a number of servants called who could labor with their might so that the master could prepare the way to bring forth again the natural fruit. He said this natural fruit, which appears to be the gospel way of life, is most precious, in fact, more precious than any of the other various patterns of life. Wherefore, let us go to and labor with our might this last time, for behold, the end draweth nigh, and this is for the last time that I shall prune my vineyard. The master said the work must be done with all their might, because this was the last time, and the end was getting close. We interpret this to mean that this would be the last dispensation, and the winding up scene prior to the ushering in of the millennium. Graft in the branches. Begin at the last, that they may be first, and that the first may be last. And dig about the trees, both old and young, the first and the last and the last and the first, that all may be nourished once again for the last time. In grafting in the branches through the gathering of Israel, the Lord of the vineyard said they should start with the last, that is, the Gentiles, among whom the blood of Israel had been scattered, that they might be the first in the latter days. They were then to go to those who were first in the beginning, meaning the Jews, who in Christ's time were the first to receive the gospel, that in this dispensation they might be the last, thus filling one of the prophecies in Scripture. For example, 1 Nephi 13 and 42. Wherefore, dig about them, and prune them, and dung them once more for the last time, for the end draweth nigh. And if it be so that these last grafts shall grow, and bring forth a natural fruit, then shall ye prepare the way for them, that they may grow. And as they begin to grow, ye shall clear away the branches which bring forth bitter fruit, according to the strength of the good and the size thereof. And ye shall not clear away the bad thereof all at once, lest the roots thereof should be too strong for the graft, and the graft thereof shall perish, and I lose the trees of my vineyard. 
for it grieveth me that I should lose the trees of my vineyard. Wherefore ye shall clear away the bad according as the good shall grow, that the root and the top may be equal in strength, until the good shall overcome the bad, and the bad be hewn down and cast into the fire, that they cumber not the ground of my vineyard, and thus will I sweep away the bad out of my vineyard. And the branches of the natural tree will I graft in again into the natural tree. And the branches of the natural tree will I graft into the natural branches of the tree. And thus will I bring them together again, that they shall bring forth the natural fruit, and they shall be one. And the bad shall be cast away, yea, even out of all the land of my vineyard. For behold, only this once will I prune my vineyard. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard sent his servant. And the servant went and did as the Lord had commanded him, and brought other servants, and they were few. The master of the vineyard said that if these branches finally caught on and began to bring forth the original natural fruit, then his servants were to prepare the way in order that they may have more room. This meant that they were to clear away the branches that had brought forth bitter fruit or apostate cultures, but they were not to do it all at once, lest the surviving branches became too weak to absorb the strength of the roots and the whole tree perished. They were also to clear away the dead wood and corrupt branches as fast as the good branches were able to take over. Then they were to keep the top of the tree in a wholesome relationship with the roots. In other words, the top of the tree, or outward organization of the church, was not to exceed the ramification of the gospel principles and structure outlined in the scripture. Gradually the branches producing bad fruit would be hewn down and cast into the fire. The Lord of the vineyard said, Quote, and thus I will sweep away the bad out of my vineyard, unquote. In verses 67 and 68, the parable identifies the grafting process as the great last gathering of Israel, whereby they could be made one people once again. It would be a time of great cleansing of the master's vineyard, since he had resolved that only this once would he cleanse and prune his vineyard before the end came. This important campaign was therefore launched, and as many servants as possible were mobilized to help. Unfortunately, however, the number of servants were few. And the Lord of the vineyard said unto them, Go to and labor in the vineyard with your might. For behold, this is the last time that I shall nourish my vineyard. For the end is nigh at hand, and the season speedily cometh. And if ye labor with your might with me, ye shall have joy in the fruit which I shall lay up unto myself against the time which will soon come. Nevertheless, the master promised that if these servants would labor with all their might, he would then let them share with him the joy that would come from the great harvest of good fruit. And it came to pass that the servants did go and labor with their mights. And the Lord of the vineyard labored also with them, and they did obey the commandments of the Lord of the vineyard in all things. And there began to be the natural fruit again in the vineyard, and the natural branches began to grow and thrive exceedingly, 
and the wild branches began to be plucked off and to be cast away, and they did keep the root and the top thereof equal according to the strength thereof. In this campaign the Lord of the vineyard labored with his servants, and this may have reference to the Father's direct participation with the Savior in the ushering in of this dispensation in the latter days. In consequence of the mighty effort put forth by the Lord of the vineyard and his servants, the parable says the natural branches would begin to grow and thrive exceedingly. There is a further prediction that as the wild branches were pruned out, the top of the trees would be kept in balance and equal to the strength of the roots. This is thought to mean that the organization and administration of the church in the latter days would be kept within the boundaries depicted by the scriptures. Several times since the restoration of the gospel, the modern prophets have taken steps to keep the church ritual, the buildings, and even the structural programming from becoming overly technical, complex, ornate, or otherwise beyond the pattern described by the Lord in his revelations. And thus they labored with all diligence, according to the commandments of the Lord of the vineyard, even until the bad had been cast away out of the vineyard, and the Lord had preserved unto himself that the trees had become again the natural fruit, and they became like unto one body, and the fruits were equal. And the Lord of the vineyard had preserved unto himself the natural fruit which was most precious unto him from the beginning. According to the allegory, this latter-day project will bring much success not only in cleansing the vineyard of the evil or wild branches, but in getting all of the branches of Israel to produce good fruit so that they can be one body. It says the fruit of the tree would be equal, meaning no doubt that the benefits of this great Zion society of the latter days would be shared by all according to their respective wants and needs. And it came to pass that when the Lord of the vineyard saw that his fruit was good, and that his vineyard was no more corrupt, he called up his servants and said unto them, Behold, for this last time have we nourished my vineyard, and thou beholdest that I have done according to my will, and I have preserved the natural fruit that it is good, even like as it was in the beginning. And blessed art thou, for because ye have been diligent in laboring with me in my vineyard, and have kept my commandments, and have brought unto me again the natural fruit that my vineyard is no more corrupted, and the bad is cast away, behold, ye shall have joy with me because of the fruit of my vineyard. Verse 75 further emphasizes the Lord's profit-sharing program for his servants. The parable says that because the Lord's servants will labor diligently and keep the commandments, he will invite them to share with him the fruits and joy which come as a result of the abundant harvest. For behold, for a long time will I lay up of the fruit of my vineyard unto mine own self against the season which speedily cometh. And for the last time have I nourished my vineyard, and pruned it, and dug about it, and dunged it, Wherefore I will lay up unto mine own self of the fruit for a long time, according to that which I have spoken. And when the time cometh, that evil fruit shall again come into my vineyard, 
Then will I cause the good and the bad to be gathered, and the good will I preserve unto myself, and the bad will I cast away into its own place. And then cometh the season and the end, and my vineyard will I cause to be burned with fire. The parable says this marvelous harvest of good fruit will last for a long time, and during these many years the Lord will lay up much fruit. This appears to be referring to the millennium. At the end of this peaceful, productive period of the millennium, the allegory says something tragic will happen. Once more, the wild fruit will begin to appear in the Lord's vineyard. The Lord said that when this happens, he will gather the good fruit and also the bad fruit. The good fruit he will preserve unto himself, but the bad fruit he will cast into its own place. Then comes the winding up scenes and the preparation of the earth to be celestialized by fire. In a modern revelation, the Lord describes the great falling away and the final conflagration or fire, which will turn the earth into a celestial sphere likened to a sea of glass. The scripture says, quote, and again, verily, I say unto you that when the thousand years are ended, and men again begin to deny their God, then will I spare the earth but a little season. And the end will come, and the heaven and the earth shall be consumed and pass away, and there shall be a new heaven and a new earth. This earth in its sanctified and immortal state will be made like unto a crystal, and will be a urim and thummim to the inhabitants who dwell thereon whereby all things pertaining to an inferior kingdom or all kingdoms of a lower order will be manifest to those who dwell on it, and this earth will be Christ's. Thus we come to the conclusion of this remarkable parable, which was employed by the Lord to give the history of Israel in an allegory, so that only those who had the prophetic keys, such as Isaiah, Nephi, and Jacob, so forth, would know what it meant. The rest would only understand the parable as it unfolded and came to pass. The Book of Jacob, Chapter 6 Jacob now comments briefly on the allegory of the tame olive tree. He says, Everything represented in this allegory will surely come to pass. And now behold, my brethren, as I said unto you that I would prophesy, behold, this is my prophecy that the things which this prophet Zenos spake concerning the house of Israel, in the which he likened them unto a tame olive tree, must surely come to pass, and the day that he shall set his hand again the second time to recover his people, is the day, yea, even the last time, that the servants of the Lord shall go forth in his power to nourish and prune his vineyard, and after that the end soon cometh. And how blessed are they who have labored diligently in his vineyard! And how cursed are they who shall be cast out into their own place! And the world shall be burned with fire! Jacob says, How blessed are they who are called to labor in God's great vineyard! And how cursed are those who reject the message and stay behind! This probably refers to those who will be left on their own place and not caught up with the saints when the great destruction of God consumes the wicked. In that crucial moment, the saints that are upon the earth who are alive shall be quickened and caught up to meet him. But for those who are not caught up but are cast out or left behind, it will be a terrifying moment. As Jesus says, quote, 
Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour the Lord shall come, unquote. In ancient times the wicked were destroyed by the waters of a great flood. But the prophets emphasize that the destruction of the wicked just before the millennium will be by fire. And how merciful is our God unto us! For he remembereth the house of Israel, both roots and branches, and he stretches forth his hands unto them all the day long. And they are a stiff-necked and a gainsaying people. But as many as will not harden their hearts shall be saved in the kingdom of God. Note that in the last part of this verse 4, Jacob emphasizes that not all of Israel will be saved in the last days, but only those who harden up their hearts against the Lord's servants when they come with the gospel message. All those who accept the gospel in its fullness will be saved, but the remainder will be lost. Isaiah indicates that only one-tenth of the Israelites in the last days will embrace the gospel and return to the Lord. And he says that in Second Nephi 16 and 13. This shows how precious every member of the church is to the Lord in this dispensation. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, I beseech of you in words of soberness that ye would repent and come with full purpose of heart and cleave unto God as he cleaveth unto you. And while his arm of mercy is extended towards you in the light of the day, harden not your hearts. Yea, today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For why will ye die? Jacob makes a direct appeal to all Israelites to read these words. He beseeches them with words of soberness to repent and come with full purpose of heart and cleave unto God as he cleaves unto them. He points out that while they have the light of day in this life to partake of the mercy of God, they must not harden their hearts, for if they do, they will pass into the next life and partake of the darkness which engulfs all those who had an opportunity to accept the gospel but rejected it. The highest degree of glory such people can attain is the terrestrial kingdom. By rejecting the gospel in this life, they forfeit the celestial kingdom. Therefore, Jacob says they should make their commitment today, for otherwise they will perish spiritually. He asked them bluntly, Why will you die and be separated from the Father forever? For behold, after ye have been nourished by the good word of God all the day long, Will ye bring forth evil fruit, that ye must be hewn down and cast into the fire? Now we come to the verse in which Jacob identifies the meaning of nourishment in the allegory of the tame olive tree. It will be recalled that it was the roots which provided the nourishment for the branches so that they could bring forth good fruit. Jacob says this nourishment was, quote, the good word of God, unquote. He then goes on to say, in effect, that after enjoying the revelations and manifest powers of God, one cannot bring forth bad fruit without risking the penalty of being hewn down and cast into the fire. Behold, will ye reject these words? Will ye reject the words of the prophets? And will ye reject all the words which have been spoken concerning Christ? 
after so many have spoken concerning him, and deny the good word of Christ, and the power of God, and the gift of the Holy Ghost, and quench the Holy Spirit, and make a mock of the great plan of redemption which hath been laid for you? Jacob asks the Israelites of the last days if they're going to reject all of the evidence which God has provided to make it easy for them to recognize and accept the gospel. He plainly asks them if they're going to blindly reject the words of the prophets, especially as to what they had to say about Christ. He also asks them if they're going to reject the good words of Christ himself and the manifestations of the power of God, the gift of the Holy Ghost, and deliberately quench the Holy Spirit. If they do, then they will be making a mockery of the great plan of salvation, which was specifically designed to save them. Know ye not that if ye will do these things, that the power of the redemption and the resurrection which is in Christ will bring you to stand with shame and awful guilt before the bar of God? And according to the power of justice, for justice cannot be denied, ye must go away into that lake of fire and brimstone, whose flames are unquenchable, and whose smoke ascendeth up for ever and ever, which lake of fire and brimstone is endless torment. Even so they cannot escape from Christ. The power of his redemption will bring them forth before the judgment to stand with shame and an awful sense of guilt before the judgment bar of God. All of those who stand condemned for rejecting the gospel will be required to go away and have their part in the lake of fire and brimstone which is known as endless punishment. In the Doctrine and Covenants, 19th section, 16 to 12, the, the, the Lord explains that there will always be a place of punishment for the disobedient, and that is why it is called endless. However, the torment for the individual ends when he has paid the uttermost farthing. Nevertheless, in this modern revelation, the Lord tells us how terrible it is to suffer for one's own sins. O oh, then, my beloved brethren, repent ye, and enter in at the straight gate, and continue in the way which is narrow, until ye shall obtain eternal life. O oh, be wise! What can I say more? It is sometimes difficult for men and women to reconcile themselves to the needs of discipline which leads to the celestial kingdom of God. Jacob pleads of the Israelites of the last days to repent and enter in at the straight gate, then continue in the way which is narrow until they obtain eternal life. Jacob has already warned the reader that not all Israelites are going to be willing to do this. Almost in a final burst of desperation, Jacob cries out, Oh, be wise! In the final analysis, there isn't anything more he can say than, Be wise! This is the only course which makes common sense. It isn't rational to reject the gospel. Nevertheless, half of the church and kingdom of God will be foolish in the last days and be rejected when the Lord comes because they let their lamps go out. The Lord has explained that the parable of the five foolish virgins refers specifically to the members of the church who will be rejected at the time of the second coming. Finally, I bid you farewell, until I shall meet you before the pleasing bar of God, 
which bar striketh the wicked with awful dread and fear. Amen. With this final plea, Jacob says farewell to modern Israel until he meets them at the pleasing bar of God. The holy place from which God dispenses ultimate justice is indeed pleasing to the righteous, for that is where they are recompensed for their labors, their persecutions and trials. To them it is a place of beauty and reconciliation, but it strikes the wicked with an awful sense of fear. The Book of Jacob, Chapter 7 This chapter in the Book of Mormon is a bonus. There is no doubt but what Jacob was giving his final farewell in the previous chapter. But before he died, Jacob seems to have felt compelled to include a sweeping chapter of a very important historical event which occurred in his final years. This turns out to be a scriptural treasure. The significance of this chapter may be better appreciated when we remind ourselves that Jacob was born during Lehi's trek through the wilderness around 598 B.C., and that he seems to have lived until approximately 500 B.C. This is supported by the fact that Jacob's son Enos is described as having the records clear down to 420 B.C., and since Enos was a mature man when he received the records, this would mean that Jacob must have been nearly a 100 years old when he turned the plates over to Enos. Apparently, this seventh chapter was written when Jacob was nearly a hundred years old. And now it came to pass, after some years had passed away, there came a man among the people of Nephi whose name was Shiram. Jacob says that after some years had passed away following his recording of chapter 6, there came a brilliant apostate personality in among the Nephites named Shiram. And it came to pass that he began to preach among the people and to declare unto them that there should be no Christ. And he preached many things which were flattering unto the people. And this he did that he might overthrow the doctrine of Christ. And he labored diligently that he might lead away the hearts of the people insomuch that he did lead away many hearts. And he, knowing that I, Jacob, had faith in Christ who should come, he sought much opportunity that he might come unto me. This apostate preached that there would be no Christ. He did not preach repentance, but taught things which were flattering to the people in their sins. This is an old satanical technique. It was his hope that he could completely overthrow the doctrine of Christ in the hearts and minds of the people. This man had great ambitions. He labored diligently for the specific purpose of deceiving the hearts of the people. In fact, he had led many astray already. But what he really wanted was a direct confrontation with the prophet of God. What a victory it would be if he could shake the faith of the president of the church. Therefore, he, quote, sought much opportunity, unquote, for an interview with him. And he was learned that he had a perfect knowledge of the language of the people, wherefore he could use much flattery and much power of speech according to the power of the devil, and he had hope to shake me from the faith, notwithstanding the many revelations and the many things which I had seen concerning these things. 
for I truly had seen angels, and they had ministered unto me. And also I had heard the voice of the Lord speaking unto me in very word from time to time, wherefore I could not be shaken. Sherem was very well educated. In fact, Jacob says he had a perfect knowledge of the language of the Nephites, which of course was Hebrew. Jacob also says this man was a great orator, but that his skill in persuading the people was neither honest nor righteous. It was according to the power of the devil. Jacob says the audacity of this man was astonishing. Sherem actually thought he could shake Jacob's faith in spite of all the revelations Jacob had received from the Lord. Jacob had seen angels and had personally heard the voice of the Lord, not just once, but from time to time throughout his life. And it came to pass that he came unto me, and on this wise did he speak unto me, saying, Brother Jacob, I have sought much opportunity that I might speak unto you, for I have heard and also know that thou goest about much, preaching that which ye call the gospel or the doctrine of Christ. And ye have led away much of this people that they pervert the right way of God, and keep not the law of Moses, which is the right way, and convert the law of Moses into the worship of a being which ye say shall come many hundred years hence. And now, behold, I, Shiram, declare unto you that this is blasphemy. For no man knoweth of such things, for he cannot tell of things to come. And after this manner did Shiram contend against me. Jacob includes in his record some direct quotations from his interview with Shiram. Shiram came in as though he were a member of the church and addressed the prophet of God as Brother Jacob. He accused Jacob of going around preaching the, quote, gospel, which is the doctrine of Christ, unquote. Shiram's use of the word gospel is interesting. The original writings of Moses states that the gospel was preached from the beginning, and that can be found in Moses 6 and 15. Yet our present Old Testament does not mention the word gospel even once. However, it is used frequently in the translation of the New Testament. The fact that Shiram was using the word gospel in the 5th century before Christ indicates that people were very familiar with this particular term in Old Testament times. The Book of Mormon mentions gospel 30 times prior to the coming of Christ. The modern word gospel comes from the Anglo-Saxon, God's spell, which means good tidings of the God story. It is from the Latin version of the word gospel that our term evangelism comes. An evangelist is one who proclaims the good tidings of the gospel or the good news of the mission of Jesus Christ and the plan of salvation. Sheeran was right on target when he used the word, quote, gospel or the doctrine of Christ, unquote, to describe what Jacob was teaching. Shiram then accuses Jacob of perverting the right way of God by distracting the people from keeping the law of Moses and getting them to worship a being who is supposed to come to the earth several hundred years hence. 
In brazen arrogance, Shiram rebuked Jacob as the head of the Nephite church and said the doctrine of Christ was nothing short of blasphemy. Shiram said no man can know of such things because no man can tell things to come. But behold, the Lord God poured in his spirit into my soul, insomuch that I did confound him in all his words. And I said unto him, Deniest thou the Christ who should come? And he said, If there should be a Christ, I would not deny him. But I know that there is no Christ, neither has been or ever will be. And I said unto him, Believest thou the Scriptures? And he said, Yea. And I said unto him, Then ye do not understand them, for they truly testify of Christ. Behold, I say unto you, that none of the prophets have written, nor prophesied, save they have spoken concerning this Christ. And this is not all. It has been made manifest unto me, for I have heard and seen and it also has been made manifest unto me by the power of the Holy Ghost. Wherefore I know, if there should be no atonement made, all mankind must be lost. Such an affront to the whole gospel theme would be a baffling task to repudiate for the simple reason that one hardly knows where to begin with such an apostate spirit. Here is Shiram, defending the law of Moses and yet attacking the gospel of Jesus Christ when the whole purpose of the law of Moses was to bring people to Christ. How do you handle a mentality like that? Jacob clearly recognized the challenge, and he expressed gratefulness that the Lord had poured out his spirit on Jacob's soul so that he was able to confound Shiram in all his words. Jacob said, quote, Deniest thou the Christ who should come? Unquote. In his reply, Shiram hedged a little and said he would not deny Christ if there was a Christ, but then he quickly bolstered his position by stating with certainty that there never would be and never had been a Christ. Now this laid a foundation for Jacob's next bit of Socratic probing. Having firmly established Shiram's declaration, that the whole idea of Christ was a fake, Jacob quietly asked him if he believed in the scriptures. As a pretended supporter of the law of Moses, Shirim immediately replied, Yea! He didn't realize, but he was now caught in a trap. Jacob could have immediately made Shirim look ridiculous by quoting dozens of verses of scripture dealing with the Christ. The brass plates were literally loaded with such scriptures. But Jacob chose not to do this. In a spirit of kindness, he suggested that Shiram had apparently not understood the scriptures. He then certified that none of the prophets have written or prophesied without speaking specifically of Jesus Christ. Continuing in a low key, Jacob presented Shiram with the irrefutable declaration that he, Jacob, was a scientific witness to the reality of Christ because he had both seen him and heard him. In fact, Jacob first saw the Christ when he was very young. He even saw a vision of the day when Jesus would perform his great redemptive sacrifice. Furthermore, Jacob had been instructed by the Holy Ghost concerning the importance of Christ's mission. 
He had been told that without the atonement, the entire human race would have been lost. And it came to pass that he said unto me, Show me a sign by this power of the Holy Ghost in the which ye know so much. At this point, Shiram was apparently deeply flustered. No doubt he realized exactly what Jacob was doing to him. A superior mind was tying him in knots. Shiram was an experienced public speaker and debater, so he seems to have known that he had to do something to get himself off the defensive. He had to challenge Jacob in a way that would put him on the defensive. Jacob's testimony concerning the Holy Ghost obviously suggested to Shiram a possible way out. Turning on Jacob, Shiram demanded, Show me a sign by the power of this Holy Ghost, of which you seem to know so much. And I said unto him, What am I that I should tempt God to show unto thee a sign in the thing which thou knowest to be true? Yet thou wilt deny it, because thou art of the devil. Nevertheless, not my will be done. But if God shall smite thee, let that be a sign unto thee that he has power, both in heaven and in earth, and also that Christ shall come, and thy will, O Lord, be done, and not mine. Jacob handled this challenge in a most interesting way. First he addressed himself to Shiram, then to the Lord. To Shiram he said, quote, what am I that I should ask God to show unto thee a sign of things which thou knowest to be true? Unquote. Jacob told Shiram that even if a sign were given, the old apostate would deny it because he was of the devil. However, in such a critical situation, Jacob knew he must not attempt to dictate to the Lord as to how he should respond to the challenge that had come from Shiram. He therefore told Shiram that if a sign were given, it would demonstrate two things. First, it would demonstrate to Shiram that God is indeed the creator both of heaven and earth. And secondly, that Christ will very shortly come. Jacob then turned to the Lord and said, quote, And thy will, O Lord, be done, not mine. Unquote. And it came to pass that when I, Jacob, had spoken these words, the power of the Lord came upon him, insomuch that he fell to the earth. And it came to pass that he was nourished for the space of many days. Jacob had barely uttered the words when a bolt of power came out of the heavens and struck Shiram to the ground. It did not kill him immediately, however, and so his friends rushed forward, carried him away, and nourished him for many days. And it came to pass that he said unto the people, Gather together on the morrow, for I shall die. Wherefore I desire to speak unto the people before I shall die. And it came to pass that on the morrow the multitude were gathered together, and he spake plainly unto them, and denied the things which he had taught them, and confessed the Christ, and the power of the Holy Ghost, and the ministering of angels, and he spake plainly unto them that he had been deceived by the power of the devil. And he spake of hell, and of eternity, and of eternal punishment, 
and he said, I fear, lest I have committed the unpardonable sin, for I have lied unto God, for I denied the Christ, and said that I believed the Scriptures, and they truly testify of Him. And because I have thus lied unto God, I greatly fear lest my case shall be awful. But I confess unto God. And it came to pass that when he had said these words, he could say no more, and he gave up the ghost. Finally, Shiram felt his life slipping away from him. He sent a public notice to all the people, asking them to gather the next day so he could speak to them once more before he died. When the great gathering took place, it must have been a tense and dramatic moment as the people waited for the dying man to speak. When Shiram did speak, he openly denied the things he had previously taught them. He then confessed before God and the multitude three things. He confessed the divinity of Christ, and he confessed that the Holy Ghost did indeed have power, and he confessed to the ministering of angels. Shirim said he had been deceived by the power of the devil. Then he began talking about hell and eternity and the reality of eternal punishment. Shirim cried out that he feared he might have committed the unpardonable sin because he had lied unto God and had denied the Christ while at the same time claiming he believed the scriptures. Shirim was obviously tormented with the fear that his case would be awful before the judgment of God, and therefore he said, quote, But I confess unto God, unquote. Fortunately, a person cannot be guilty of the unpardonable sin and thereby become a son of perdition unless he has previously seen the heavens open and great manifestations of spiritual power and therefore witnessed the power of God and then denied it. After Shirim's deathbed repentance, he gave up the ghost. And when the multitude had witnessed that he spake these things, as he was about to give up the ghost, they were astonished exceedingly, insomuch that the power of God came down upon them, and they were overcome, that they fell to the earth. Now this thing was pleasing unto me, Jacob, for I had requested it of my Father who was in heaven, for he had heard my cry and answered my prayer. And it came to pass that peace and the love of God was restored again among the people, and they searched the scriptures and hearkened no more to the words of this wicked man. When the multitude suddenly realized that this confession was Shiram's last mortal words, they were astonished exceedingly. In fact, they were so overcome by the Spirit of God which descended upon them that they fell to the ground. When Jacob heard this apostate but repentant man finally bear his testimony and make his confession, it pleased Jacob because he had prayed that Shiram would be inspired to do this. Because of the traumatic demonstration of God's power in striking Sheman to the earth, and then having him confess his errors and the deceit that he had perpetuated upon the people, they all resolved to abandon everything that he had taught. Unfortunately, we will find that later on, 
Satan reveals once again all of the things that Shiram had taught. And it came to pass that many means were devised to reclaim and restore the Lamanites to the knowledge of the truth. But it was all vain, for they delighted in wars and bloodshed, and they had an eternal hatred against us, their brethren. And they sought by the power of their arms to destroy us continually. Wherefore the people of Nephi did fortify against them with their arms, and with all their might trusting in the God and rock of their salvation, wherefore they became as yet conquerors of their enemies. Before he died, Jacob wanted future generations to know that the Nephites were not a self-centered people. They were not anxious to save themselves only, but also the Lamanites. In the best missionary tradition, they had devised many means to restore these brethren to a knowledge of the truth. But tragically, all of their efforts were in vain. It would be some 400 years before the Nephite missionaries would finally make a breakthrough in converting the Lamanites. Meanwhile, the Lamanites maintain an eternal hatred against the Nephites. Not only that, but instead of going away and pursuing their own traditions, the Lamanites waged guerrilla warfare against the Nephites continually. This forced the Nephites to exert the greatest possible effort to continually fortify themselves. But the Lord did bless them with continuous victories, but they were attacked continuously. This was a long period of frustration and warfare. And it came to pass that I, Jacob, began to be old, and the record of this people being kept on the other plates of Nephi. Wherefore I conclude this record, declaring that I have written according to the best of my knowledge, by saying that the time passed away with us, and also our lives passed away, like as it were unto us a dream, we being a lonesome and a solemn people, Wanders cast out from Jerusalem, born in tribulation, in a wilderness, and hated of our brethren, which caused wars and contentions, wherefore we did mourn out our days. Now Jacob was ready to make his final statement before he closed his record. He stated that by this time he had begun to be old, and we have seen he was very old. We later discovered that he had lived at least a century and maybe a little longer. But as Jacob looked back on his life and all the things he had witnessed, it was virtually unbelievable. He said his life had been more like a dream, and it had been a rugged life. Beginning with only a handful of people in Nephi, they'd built a great city, constructed a temple similar to that built by Solomon. They had broken vast tracts of land for cultivation, constructed houses, erected public buildings, excavated and established mining operations, and built up their domestic flocks and herds. What was equally important, they had accomplished this while under the constant harassment of guerrilla raids by the Lamanites. They had been forced to build mighty walls and towers and other defenses to keep themselves from being massacred. Jacob said that under all this distress and warfare and anxiety, they'd been a lonesome and solemn people. Only on rare occasions did they have any sense of security, relaxation, or happiness. Jacob therefore says they did mourn out their days. And I, Jacob, 
saw that I must soon go down to my grave. Wherefore I said unto my son Enos, Take these plates. And I told him the things which my brother Nephi had commanded me, and he promised obedience unto the commands. And I make an end of my writing upon these plates, which writing has been small. And to the reader I bid farewell, hoping that many of my brethren may read my words. Brethren, adieu. Jacob knew death was near, and his frail body was soon to go down to the grave. Therefore he handed over the sacred records to Enos, who was his son. He told Enos to maintain the records in accordance with the instructions of Nephi. Jacob acknowledged that his writings on these plates had been small. Nevertheless, he hoped that his brethren would read these records. Jacob closed his farewell with a word Joseph Smith was inspired to translate as adieu. The word is from the French, meaning to God, or with God. It carries the same connotation as the English phrase, God be with you. Early critics of the Book of Mormon ridiculed the fact that a French word would appear in this text, which is supposed to be taken from the Hebrew and Egyptian. However, their point was groundless. Joseph Smith simply used a very common term of that day, to capture the meaning of the original word used by Jacob, which meant to God. That is exactly what the word adieu means. If you are enjoying this podcast with W. Cleon Skousen, you might enjoy his lecture recordings while at Brigham Young University, found at skousenlibrary.com.